0: Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin.
1: Join me, if you will, in Joshua 24. Joshua 24. And I encourage you to have your Bibles ready, have a pen ready, have your note sheet ready that you received when you came in. Uh, The Word of God is so serious that it's important imperative that we interact with it and we work with it as we study it. And so you are not here for me just to talk at you. We are here to, together, let the Spirit of God talk to our hearts by the Word. And so I want to encourage you to, to dig in with me for the next few moments. As we have seen over the last few weeks, the death of a world-famous leader and how that dominates the news we in a way we grasp the 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 death of influential figures as we come to the conclusion of the book of Joshua it's been as I mentioned already it's the 30th message in Joshua we see the death of Israel's great leader Israel has been led by Joshua for several decades Some of them, a few of them, a very small group of them probably remembered Moses. But Joshua had been the one to lead them into the land of promise. Joshua had been the leader with whom they had gone to battle. These Israelites grew up, some of them, in the wilderness under Moses, but they had matured. They had matured in Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. They had wandered with Moses, but Joshua had led them home. They had struggled to find success under Moses, but Joshua led them to victory. They had no peace in the wilderness under Moses, but through Joshua's leadership, they experienced the rest that was available in Canaan. They had witnessed the failures of their parents in the wilderness but they've seen firsthand the victory and the power of God in the promised land. There's definitely a picture that I want to make sure in our final message that we get when we study the Bible, Old Testament, to connect it to the New. There's a picture here of the Old and the New Covenants for sure. Now when we say the Old Covenant, we need to remember that the Old Covenant had its roots which are found in three main promises to a man named Abraham. Those promises were that God had promised a great nation. The second promise is that God had promised a land. We call it the promised land. The third promise that God had made to Abraham was descendants as innumerable as the dust of the earth and as the stars of heaven. While the roots of the old covenant are found in God's dealing with Abraham, the terms of the covenant are laid out in Exodus 20, beginning with the Ten Commandments. After hearing God's terms, Israel replied to God's terms with these words in Exodus chapter 24. And he took the book of the covenant, speaking of Moses, and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. All that the Lord hath said we will do, we'll be obedient. So the terms of the old covenant are laid out and Israel accepts them. And in this, we know that as much as Israel may have promised, promised to do what the Lord had said, promised to be obedient, Israel simply did not keep their end of the covenant. With Moses, we saw the struggle. We saw the failures. We saw their rebellion against God. In spite of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, God was gracious to Israel And God was, in His grace, still bringing them into the land that He had promised to Abraham several hundred years earlier. And He does so so through the leadership of Joshua. But this is where, and I want you to listen very, try to listen very intently here. This is where we begin to see the glimpses into the New Covenant. You see, Joshua, the Old Testament figure, is an Old Testament, what we call, an Old Testament shadow of Jesus. Joshua is a shadow. He points toward the real thing. The shadow is not the real thing. It points to the real thing. Joshua, in the Old Testament, is a symbol of God's grace to Israel. Jesus is the grace of God that has visited all men. Joshua is a pillar of the truth of God. And how Joshua is calling Israel to be faithful to the covenant and in being faithful to find life. Jesus comes and Jesus is the truth and the life. Joshua is a leader who brings God's people into a temporary promise. But Jesus Christ is the Savior who leads us to eternal promise. Joshua, his own name means Jehovah is our salvation. And in this name, he's a representation of a great leader, the one to come who is our salvation. In fact, Joshua so much foreshadows Christ. He so much, so much points us to Christ in, that in the New Testament he's referenced only twice and he's referenced through his Greek name or what would be his Greek name. Twice in the New Testament Joshua is referenced and he is called Jesus. Jesus His Hebrew name, we would often hear him called Yeshua or Joshua, the greater Joshua. So in all this, we've seen and we should see that these 24 chapters are a a constant shadow of the Savior who is to come. And the whole book, the whole purpose of this book has been to point us forward to Jesus and and the ultimate victory, the victorious Christ. And my prayer has been that in putting together 30 messages from this Old Testament book that you have found yourself more and more not trying to be like Joshua. Not trying to dig deep to find the inner Joshua in you to to be the great leader that you think God wants you to be. But ultimately, to fix your eyes on the Savior with greater love and joy. That's been our greatest hope and desire in all this. That your eyes have been turned to Christ. While also remembering that your God, my God, our God, is a faithful God. He is faithful. So we look at the last portion here, and maybe it seems a little morbid to you, but there's really important biblical themes that we need to see. And so, as quickly as I can today, I want you to see three aspects of the final portion of this passage about the death of Joshua. The first thing is I want you to see the death of a servant, the death of a servant. There are two portions of Scripture that speak of the death of Joshua. Both are important, and both connect to a final theme regarding his life and his death. So we're going to start with Joshua 24. Look at verse 29 with me, if you would, please. We see these words. And after it came to pass, after these things, that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath, Sarah, which is in Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. Those words there, and it came to pass after these things, they're referring to Joshua speaking to the people, as we have seen over the last few Sundays, the final words of Joshua, and him sending the people back to their inherited land. So after these things, the servant of the Lord died. The second text about Joshua's death is actually found in the next book of the Bible. It's the book of Judges. The first part of the book of Judges picks up where we left off last week with the people returning to their homes. But then we get into Judges 2 and we find these words. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. The narrative in Judges goes back to the end of Joshua. But then in verse 8 we see these words. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. Now, quickly this morning, there's an important feature in this epitaph. Joshua, Joshua, in Joshua 24 and in Judges chapter 2, is called the servant of the Lord for the first time. Moses was referred to as the Lord's servant in some way 17 times in the book of Joshua alone. Joshua's book told us that Moses was the servant of the Lord 17 times. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua was introduced to us as Moses' minister. If you will, Joshua was told when he first became the leader of Israel, this is Moses' servant. But Moses is the servant of the Lord. Now we find Joshua, who's the new guy, is the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord, Joshua, dies at the ripe old age of 110. And everything here, whether you realize it or not, in, in a Hebrew context, is written with comparison. Joshua is, in being compared to Moses, he doesn't add up to Moses' level. I mean, Moses was 120, right? Moses' epitaph in Deuteronomy 34 is longer than Joshua's. But what is seen here about Joshua is that unlike Moses, Joshua died in his inherited land. Moses died outside Canaan, but Joshua, we're told, he died in the land that he was given as an inheritance, And just like that, just like Moses at the end of his life, Joshua, this leader we've studied, this man we've witnessed for 24 chapters now, this man at the end of his life, in death, the writer says to us this, he was the servant of the Lord. Now why would he have received that title? Why would he have received that title similar to Moses, well, two reasons, uh, four reasons why either of them would be referred to as a servant of the Lord. Number one, they led the people of God to be faithful to God. They led the people of God to be faithful to God. Secondly, they were obedient to the Lord's commands and to the Lord's direction. Thirdly, they spoke and acted faithfully on behalf of God. And fourthly, specifically Moses, but Joshua at times, interceded to God for the people with mercy and pleading for mercy. And so these two men were of significant importance to the nation of Israel. And both of them, we're told, were the servants of the Lord. Both of them pushing our eyes forward to the man who would be called the suffering servant. Most importantly, though, in comparison to Jesus, these men are servants. And as much as Christ came to serve, Jesus Christ was the Son a servant points to the master, but the son brings us to the father. A servant points us to the master. We know who Moses' master was. We know who Joshua's master was. But Jesus, in a greater way, doesn't just point us at, to, to a master. Jesus brings us as the son to the father. And we'll come back to that in just a moment, but I want you to see that in these final moments, we see the death of a man who is now called the servant of the Lord. Secondly, here in this passage, we see the end of an era. It might sneak up on us. We might not realize the importance of this. But we read in verse 32, And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, bur- buried they in Shechem in a parcel of ground, which, Joseph, with J- with, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hammer, the father of Shechem, for an hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. Now, what is the purpose of this? And why did it matter? Now, keep in mind, much of the context of Joshua, the book of Joshua, is about the promises of God to Abraham being fulfilled. We've talked about that constantly. This account of the transferring of Joseph's body to Canaan, to Canaan from Egypt is another reminder of the promises of God finding fulfillment. Now, i got to take you back for a moment to, to connect this for you. I want you to see Genesis chapter 50. Notice Joseph's last moments of life. He said this unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you, and bring you out of this land, unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence, So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph and Joshua, by the way, both died at the same age, 110. And Joseph told his family at the end of his life, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. He said, God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God is going to visit you and God is going to take you out of Egypt and God is going to take you into a land. And when that happens... You take my bones, and you take them with you. Now we know that Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. So 400 years after Joseph's final words, the children of Israel in the Exodus, they are grave robbers. <laughs> they take the bones of Joshua, of, of Joseph. And they take them with them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Those bones journey in the wilderness for 40 years. (laughs) Those bones travel across the Jordan River. Those bones travel. Those bones are probably with them when they're marching around Jericho. All the while, several hundred years after Joseph's life, the children of Israel take these bones. And what was this? Listen very carefully. To go back to Joseph... This was an act of faith. Joseph said, I'm going to be dead. I'll have no idea what you do with my bones. But I'm asking on the promises of God, by faith, that you take my bones and you take them to Canaan where I belong. Now, I don't know about you, and I could stop and probably really hammer home a whole lot of gospel promises Because I don't know what's going to happen to me physically when I die. But I know this, that this is not where I'm going to stay. Wherever you bury me is not going to be my final resting place. And Joseph's request is an act of faith. And it all comes full circle here. Because now what's happened is, Joseph said, God has promised, and in the end of Joshua, in the end of the book of Joshua, they buried Joseph's bones in Shechem, in a land that was bought hundreds of years before by Abraham. His bones are buried there. And the story, if you will, in this way, comes to full conclusion. But this book of Joshua actually ends in a different way. It takes us to verse 33 and says... And Eleazar the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas' his son, which was given, in, given him to mount, in mount Ephraim. Now, in this passage, we have get these three burials. We get the burial of jo- Joshua. We get the burial of Joseph's bones. And we get the burial of this man, Eleazar. Who was he? Well, he was a key man in distributing the land. But here's what's signaled here at the final conclusion of the book of Joshua. Here's what I want to make sure that we grasp as we end this, this book is that the book ends by telling us that when Eleazar died, the whole generation of those who had left Egypt had come to an end. The story had reached its final conclusion. It had started with the promise of God to Abraham. It had even taken them out, what seemed like God for God's promise, into Egypt, took them into the wilderness, and now they're in Canaan. And all that had come out of Egypt, Joshua, Caleb, Eleazar, they are all now dead, and God has kept His promise. And in a way, hear me, the story ends peacefully. I'll say this. The story of Joshua ends in a way that no other Old Testament story ends. Every other Old Testament story ends in conflict. But the book of Joshua concludes in peace. Why? Because, th- because they have come to the land that God had promised. It appears to be peaceful, but there's one other thing that you need to see here. And that is we need to see the failure, the failure of another generation. As much as the story of Joshua ended peacefully, we know that the book of the scripture and the story of scripture is not over. As good as it had seemed to have ended, there's a spiritual dimension here that is not good. There's a there's a dimension here that's not good. Look at Joshua 24:31 with me. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. The point here is that those who had known and seen the works of the Lord served the Lord. They served the Lord as long as as Joshua lived. And those leaders that served with Joshua but had outlived him they too continue to serve the Lord. Now, this is no doubt a testimony, no doubt a testimony to Joshua's leadership. If you recall the words that Joshua called them to last week, hey, is it for me and my house? We'll serve the Lord. And they said, we're going to serve the Lord too. Joshua said, you can't serve the Lord. They said, well, we're going to serve the Lord. It's a testimony to Joshua's leadership that those that were with Joshua, the leaders with Joshua that served with him, that as long as they were around, Israel was faithful to God. Part of this commitment, listen very carefully, part of the commitment of this generation to serve and fear the Lord was why the book of Joshua ends peacefully and why it ended the way it should. Because there had been an older generation that had said, we will serve the Lord. As long as we're serving the Lord, there was a peaceful, there was a peacefulness throughout Canaan. Now listen very carefully. As, although you and I and our church are not going to study the book of Judges next, that's not our next study. I do want you to see what unfolded in Judges. A book that is far, far from peaceful. Judges 2, which we already looked at, said this in verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Sounds like Joshua 24, doesn't it? But go forward to verse 10. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. So hold on a second. Dig in with me for just a moment. The elders, fathers, judges, leaders, parents who had served the Lord with Joshua were faithful to the Lord. The ones who had brought... Israel into Canaan, the ones who had marched around Jericho, the ones who had seen the death of Achan, the ones who had seen the sun stand still and had seen the mighty works of the Lord, they continued to serve the Lord. But when they died, there was a generation after them that forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord. Now, there's not a for sure way to understand what broke down, what happened. There's no sociological study that we can find that speaks to the cultural nuance for why they might have changed gears here. But what happens is the generation that came after Joshua, the ones who witnessed their parents say, we will serve the Lord, we will fear the Lord, they forsook the Lord. Let me extrapolate a couple ideas for why faith Doesn't transfer from one generation to another. First off, the older generation was fighting for their inheritance, but they were not teaching their children what it meant to follow God. They were teaching their children what it looked like to fight for God, but not what it looked like to follow God. They were busy fighting for God, being obedient to God, but they were not bringing their children along, which, by the way, was a part of the Jewish command. God said, walk with your children along the way. Talk with them. Teach them. Now, listen very carefully. I say, I'm speaking today to all of us that are older, okay? 40 and up. That's me, okay? So, me up. Listen very carefully. There is a danger in fighting for God while failing to teach the next generation to follow God faithfully. There's a danger in fighting for God and giving all of our effort, My older folks in here, me, those of you with children and grandchildren, there's a danger for you and I fighting for God but never teaching our children how to follow God. Secondly, the generation that forsook God simply did not know the Lord or his mighty works. And we gotta stop for a moment and go, how? Nobody told him about Jericho? Nobody told him about the Jordan River? Nobody explained these miraculous moments? Let me say this, listen very carefully. I say this today as somebody whose dad is a pastor. I'm a second generation Christian, meaning my parents were Christians. And now I'm a Christian. Let me say this. Every generation needs to experience God in their generation. They cannot live off the experiences of those that went before them. It is not enough for me to say, my dad did, my mom did, my dad experienced. My pastor, when I was growing up, he experienced God. But at 40, I've never experienced God. It's not enough for my kids to say, man, my dad was a pastor and we watched... God's work through him, but we've never experienced God. There's a danger in that. Every generation must experience God. The truth is, I say this as a pastor with great pause. We are one generation away from spiritual decline. We're one generation away. One generation from spiritual decline. It is, a, it is literally a testimony to the grace of God that 131 years there's been a church preaching the gospel here. Because we are one generation away. Isn't it amazing to you? And at the same time tragic that this, the parents stood up and said, we will serve the Lord. And the children said, we will forsake the Lord. How does that happen? doesn't take long. Let me give you some application and conclusion. I want you, again, I'm going to ask you for the third time to dig in with me for a few moments as we conclude this book. I want to ask you a question, and I want to give you a couple statements. Number one, would there be any greater title given to us at the end of our life than the servant of the Lord? Answer that question this morning for yourself. Is there any greater title, description, identity given to you at the end of your life then so and so then Dustin Moore was a servant of the Lord Jesus. You know, I don't, I don't know how much church life you have, but I know that the Lord has brought people across my path that I would say that man, that woman was a servant of the Lord. This week we remembered in death for one year, our friend, Tom Gobleman. Tom died a year ago on Friday. In my six and a half years of being here, if you asked me to, to give a, a descriptor to that man, Tom Goldman, hands down, I would have said, that man is a servant of the Lord. Is there a better way that any of us could be described? I mean, how would you, what title do you want? What do you want people to say about you? What do you want your children, your, your spouse, your co-workers to say about you? I mean, do you, is, these titles aren't bad, but career builder, financial guru, Expert cheerleader for their children, sports junkie, political savant. I mean, we go on, On what title do you want? I'm simply asking today, is there a greater title than servant of the Lord? My prayer for our church, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, and every dad, mom, husband, wife, leader, teacher in this room, stay with me now, that we will hear the words, well done, good, and faithful servant. Then we stand before the Lord, the Lord will look at us and say, well done, servant. Well done. Servant of the Lord. Would there be any greater title? What do you want to be known as? What do you want to be called? How do you want to be remembered? By God's grace, may it be servant of the Lord. Number two. As Christian adults, parents, and leaders, it should be our desire that the children of this church have a faith in Christ that outlives us. Let me say it again. As Christian adults, parents, and leaders, it should be our desire that the children of this church have a faith in Christ that outlives us. If you'll allow me for a moment, and I don't ask for this too often, but you'll allow me a moment, I want to speak to you as a pastor speaks to his friends, to his brothers, to his sisters. Let me share my heart with you for just a moment. I would hope that each of us wants that right there. I ask the moms and dads in here, does it beat in your heart a prayer that your children, no matter how old or how young, would know and experience Jesus? Do you want that and do you pray for that? I ask the Iwana leaders and I thank and pray honor you for your service to the children of this church and those that come. I ask you, would you consider making it your prayer tonight before you walk into Awana? Would you pray that those children would experience Jesus? To the youth workers who will, in the, in, in, in the school building tonight, will sit and talk and minister to the young people of this church, would you pray that The children, the youth, the the, the youth, the teenagers in there, that they would experience Jesus, that their faith, that's just one generation of spiritual decline, that their faith would outlive all of us? That when we're gone, they have the 150th and 170th anniversary of Ravens Baptist Church, if the Lord Jesus doesn't return, but that faith won't die with us? Would you pray for that? Would you pray, Lord? Show our kids your power. Show them your promises. Show them your presence. Make Jesus real to them. Maybe you're hearing, you don't have children. Maybe you don't serve in Awana. Maybe the childbearing days are behind you. But are you willing to pray that for the children of this church? I beg you to pray over them. When you see them running around, jumping off the stage, spilling coffee, would you pray, Lord, make Jesus real to them. Make Jesus real. What a heartbreak to see the passion of Joshua calling Israel to serve God and to fear God. And to see the elders say, Joshua, we will serve God. And to watch their children walk away. I, I'm not, again, I'm not sure that I want to stand here and, and chastise them for where they failed or what happened all I know is I can't, I can't argue about what Israel did wrong if I'm not concerning myself with making sure that the four children that call me dad, that God forbid that I give them everything else but never teach them to follow Jesus. God forbid. God forbid I teach my son to throw a baseball but not to follow Jesus. God forbid I consume myself with getting my kids the best schooling but never teach them to follow Jesus or the best careers. And that's all great. It's all fine. It's got its place. But my kids have never seen me read my Bible, pray. They've never seen an answer to prayer. They've never seen a move of God that happened in my midst. I'm simply saying to his friends, listen, Our children are going to know whether we're playing church and trying to play religion or not. I'm asking, are we teaching them to follow Jesus? Are we praying that they would have a faith that outlives every one of us? And so let me challenge the parents in here for a moment, because I'm definitely not an expert in this study. I have no interest in ever writing a book about child rearing. And I caution from giving parenting advice, because I'm not the expert. Let me say this, though if I want my children to have a faith in Christ that outlives me, what decisions am I making right now as a parent that is helping that goal come about? What decisions am I making? What decisions am I making as a parent that is going to help my children, give them the best chance to see my, their, their faith go throughout the rest of their life? I get it. Can you force that outcome? No. No. I can't force my children to follow Jesus. I can't force it. But hear me, listen. Can you model an example of following Jesus in your home? Yes. Can you model an example of true Christianity? Yes. Can you as a parent model an example of faithfulness to the Lord's people every Sunday? Yes. Can you model an example of gospel-centeredness? Yes. Can you be aware of the influences that you put in your child's lives? Absolutely yes. Can you show your, parents, your, your children a biblical marriage? Yes. Can you experience Jesus alongside them? Yes. Yes. And so yes, I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't stand up here and say to all the parents, if following Jesus is the most important thing decision your children make are you helping them come to that final goal i was thinking about it this week it's much like a plant and we've got a whole lot of plants in my house it'd be great if some of you would take some of them out of my house please it's like a jungle in there i didn't just say that in front of my wife i'm sorry my wife has a bunch of plants and i say a bunch it's like 75 or more, okay? But in all seriousness, I, I watch my wife and my girls, they talk to the plant. I don't know what that's about. That's weird. You um, we might as well talk to the wall. <laughs> but here's what I know about a plant. It's Listen, and I mean this, it's, there's a whole lot for us when you look at a plant when it comes to seeing children follow Jesus. You can't force that plant to grow neither can I. What can you do? You can give it the best opportunity to grow by giving it what it needs. And I've been that guy who's a youth pastor for eight years and I've been a pastor now for almost seven who who watches parents. And by the way, I'm guilty of the same. And and you're making decisions, you're making decisions. And if the goal is to get your children to be faithful followers of Jesus, the decisions you're making are not leading to that conclusion. And my fear is you're going to have a plant that's not going to grow. I'm not always right. I'm not an expert. I have no magic ball. But I know this. The scripture gives us what our children need and the best possible chance that faith will outlive us. And I'm simply calling the parents today to recommit your efforts. Because what happened in Joshua's day was tragic. Let me just conclude lastly. And I'll be fast here. The third and final thing that we get From this from this book. What do we learn in Joshua about the victorious God that we can build our life on? And here's I'm gonna give you a couple. Every one of his promises you can take to the bank. You know, God writes checks and they never bounce. If God has made a promise, the book of Joshua is this giant book screaming, He will do what He said. And if God has promised to do what He said, What promise can you and I build our life on? There's a lot of them. Let me give you one from Joshua specifically. It goes all the way back to the beginning, and that is this. He is with us. He'll never leave us. He won't forsake us. And God fights for us. You, my friends, that seems like really simple theology, but it is very deep and you can build the house of your Christian life on those right there. Sometimes we try to build a Christian life like building a house and we build walls of moral living and windows of inner peace and the roof of religious activity and, and the plumbing and electricity of love and care for neighbor. But what we fail to do is to build our life on a foundation that is strong enough to hold true Christianity. And friends, the book of Joshua has told you God is faithful to His promises. That foundation is unshakable. And you can rest your entire Christianity on a faithful God. So faithful, listen, so faithful, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners. Not just for sinners. If you've been here, you know what I'm going to say for enemies. God sent Jesus to die for his enemies so that his enemies could be made his friends. If you're here today, you might be trying to build a religious life on a bunch of morality and you can't. You might try to build a religious life on church. You can't. (laughs) But you can build a Christian life on Jesus. You can build a Christian life on Jesus. He is is where it starts and He is the only way you go forward. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, in just a moment, one of our deacons and one of our pastors will be right down front. If you would like to know, to ask you the old Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die today, where would you go? Would it be heaven or hell? If you want to know where you could go, these two men could take the Bible and show you how you can know. You could build your life on Jesus. If you're here today, to my friends at Ravens of Baptist Church, to the parents, the leaders, the volunteers, the grandparents, would to God that when we're gone, our children, the little ones in the nursery, the ones sitting around here, the teenagers, they're running the show. That scares me a little bit as it should scare you. But wouldn't that be a testimony to God's grace? to be a testimony of God's grace. Let's pray, and let's serve, and let's work to that end, please.
0: Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, Your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.